Hi, and welcome to Why is English, a podcast about how the English language got to be the way it is. I'm Laura Brandt, and today we're continuing our look at where our alphabet came from. If you haven't listened to part one, I definitely recommend doing that, because today we're getting into more detail about a handful of letters that didn't have quite as straightforward a path as the ones we talked about in that last episode. So let's get into it. So last time, we'd been looking at where the alphabet came from, and we traced it all the way from ancient Egypt through the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Etruscans, and then finally the Romans is where we left off. And at the point we left it, the alphabet was actually pretty close to what we've got today, just a few sound shifts of the letter names away from our current alphabet, at least for most of the letters. But there's still a bit more left to the story. Like some letters that didn't exist at that point, a few letters that existed but then fell out of use, and some changes to the sounds of some letters. And so let's pick things back up again with the Romans, who, as we know, of course, eventually expanded like pretty much all over Europe, bringing, you know, their various culture and politics and whatever. But the interesting thing for us anyways is, of course, they brought their Latin alphabet with them. And just like the Latin language eventually developed separately into the different Romance languages, French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Romanian, the alphabet also kind of developed slightly differently as it got spread to different parts of Europe. You know, for example, into, say, Britain. So we're going to see how those differences play a role as we go on, but otherwise we're actually kind of done with our interest in the Romans now. So we're just going to go ahead and skip to the fall of the Roman Empire. Which is actually more interesting to us, because it was actually at that point that the Romans started leaving Britain, which is part of what allowed the Anglo-Saxons to move in and take over, which happened around the 400s. And of course, they brought their language with them too, which was a Germanic language that would eventually become English. But along with the spoken language, they also brought their writing system, which was a system that was used by the Germanic languages at that time called the runic alphabet. Now, the runic alphabet was actually related to the Latin alphabet. We're not totally sure exactly of its origins, but we do know it's related to Greek, and it probably developed either from the Etruscan alphabet, like the Latin alphabet did, or one of Etruscan's sister alphabets that was used by the various groups in Italy around that time. So the Latin alphabet and the runic alphabet kind of diverged from the same place, but over the, like, more than a thousand years since it split off, it, you know, became its own distinct separate alphabet. And so, yeah, that runic alphabet was actually the alphabet that Old English was written in up to about the 700s, because that's when Augustine brought Christianity to Britain. And as he and other Christian missionaries spread their religion, they also spread their writing system, the Latin alphabet. And because of, like, how much power the church had in Europe at the time, and, you know, how a lot of the people doing the writing were, like, monks... This time, unlike after the fall of the Roman Empire, it stuck, and Old English eventually switched over to using the Latin alphabet. 
But like we saw happen a bunch last time, since the alphabet was getting applied to a new language with different sounds than Latin, they couldn't use the Latin alphabet exactly as it was. And so there were two symbols that they actually kept from the runic alphabet for sounds that existed in Old English but not in Latin. And so there wasn't a Latin letter for them. And the first was the letter thorn, which represented the th or the th sound. And it looked kind of like a P, but with the vertical line continuing up above as much as it does below. Or maybe like a lowercase p and b overlaid on top of one another. And the second was the letter win, which represented the w, w sound. And that also looked kind of like the letter p. Which really makes you wonder why we ended up with, you know, w, which is three whole syllables and doesn't even have a w sound in it when we already had win. And so to answer that, we're going to look at the related histories of the letters U, V, and W. So if you remember from last time, the Romans had the letter V, but it was pronounced like the vowel OO. But they also used it to represent the similar consonant W. Now, over time, the Romans went through a variety of different writing styles, like typography, you know, variations on the shapes of the letters. And at one point, the lowercase v kind of got stylized in a way that, like, curved off the bottom point, so it ended up looking like a u. And while initially, in that style, it was like the capital letter was pointy and the lowercase letter was curvy, over time, they developed a capital version of the U and a lowercase version of the V. But again, it was the same letter, just a different sort of way of writing it, like in a different font, kinda. And so U's and V's became pretty much interchangeable, although over time it did start to settle a bit so that at the beginning of the word they usually wrote a V, and in the middle of a word they'd write a U. And so when the Latin alphabet got adopted for Old English, all of that got passed along with it. But aside from the shapes of the letters changing, there were also some sound changes happening in the spoken language. So in Latin, over time, when the w sound was a consonant, it gradually shifted from w to v, which is what it still is in Spanish, but then it continued to shift into a v sound. So at that point, the letters U and V both could be used to represent both the vowel sound U and the consonant sound V. But that left us again without a letter to represent the W sound, which wasn't an issue in Latin because that sound didn't exist anymore, it had shifted away from that, but it did come to exist again in Old French, so they needed to figure out some way to represent it in writing. And so around Charlemagne's time, like the 700s, they decided to write that sound using two U's. Or two V's, because remember, they were seen as the same letter. And so when the Latin alphabet was introduced to Old English, they had the same problem, where they had both the letters U and V for the U vowel, but nothing for their W sound. But they were like, I mean, we've already got our old letter win for that sound, so, I mean, yeah, let's just keep using that. And that was really the standard in Old English up until the time of the Normans, when they brought all their French influence in, along with that convention of using two U's, or two V's, because again, interchangeable, for that sound, which gradually started taking over win. 
And really the death knell of the letter win was the introduction of the printing press, because printing was invented in continental Europe, and so they only had the standard Latin letters available, so they didn't really have a way to print the letter win. And so we were left writing UU or W. Wait, I just had a thought, what if we change the letter name to UU? Would that be better or worse? I don't know. Anyways, those two U slash V's gradually merged into one letter, which we still call W, or double V in French and some other languages. And then it was actually only in the 16th century when people were like, hang on, this OO sound and this V sound are actually two different sounds now that I think about it, so we should probably use two different letters for them, huh? And so it was actually the printers in the 16th and 17th centuries that began to distinguish between the vowel U and the consonant V. And just to wrap up these letters, let's look at their letter names. So the name of V comes from Old French, where they just called the letter for this newer sound V, because that's just how the other letters were named. And just like I talked about in part one, after the great vowel shift, that turned from V into V in English. The name of U also was influenced by French, which pronounced their U's the same way as the Anglo-Saxons pronounced their Y's, like U. And that got translated in Middle English to U and then to U, which we can see in some other words too, like cure and future, where they also got that kind of Y sound before the U. And same thing with the letter Q from its previous pronunciation, Ku. And of course, like I said before, W, it's just two U's. I mean, come on, win. How much better would that be? But sadly, it did not win the battle of the letters. Sorry. And the other useful letter I mentioned a bit ago, Thorn, we also ended up losing. Again, that was also from the runic alphabet and represented a th or v sound. Just as an aside, that's both the voiced and the unvoiced versions of the sound, which we don't really distinguish in English. Like, even in Old English they didn't, they used thorn for both. But it is kind of interesting to note that they are actually two different sounds, like in thin versus then. But anyways, so why do we now use two letters, T and H, to represent one sound? Well, that actually goes back again to the ancient Greeks, and to explain it, I'm going to introduce one more phonetics concept. So if you put your hand in front of your mouth, like pretty close to it but not touching, and say the word top, you should feel a little puff of air on your hand after the T. Top. Now, keep your hand there and say the word stop. And notice that there's no puff of air after that T. Stop. So that T in top that does have a puff of air is called an aspirated T, and the T in stop is called an unaspirated T. Now, in English, we don't really distinguish between these two kinds of T, like it's all just a T sound. Like, you probably didn't even notice until I pointed it out that there's even a difference. But in other languages, including ancient Greek, although not modern Greek, they actually heard these as two different sounds, and so they had two different letters for them. The unaspirated T was represented by the letter tau, 
and the aspirated T, the one with the little puff of air, was represented by the letter teta, which over time, thanks to a sound change that happened in Greek, became the letter theta. Now, the Romans didn't have this aspirated T, so when they started using Greek words that had theta in them in Latin, they were like, how are we going to write this? I mean, it sounds like a T, but with a bit of extra air, so I guess kind of like a T-H sound, like T. And so they started transcribing Greek theta as T-H. But like I said, over time, the aspirated T became the fricative th. And this actually happened with other sounds in Greek too, like how the letter phi started out as an aspirated P, like pi, and then over time became the fricative f. Which, incidentally, is why some words that come from Greek are spelled with a PH that sounds like f, like phobia or phonetics. And so after that sound change happened around the second century, by that time, the Romans were used to transcribing theta as th, and so now that theta represented a th sound, they were like, yeah, so th represents the th sound. And so again, that idea was passed down through the Romance languages, so that by the time the Norman French took over England, it was a pretty standard thing. And so once again, the French way of writing the sound, th, took over the English letter thorn. And just like when, it didn't help any that the continental printers only had the standard Latin letters to use in their printing presses, not the runic thorn, and so yeah, thorn gave way to th. So pour one out for the lost old English letters. Although thorn did actually kinda stick around a while longer in a way, cause see, so over time, like, all the letters have changed how they're written, different styles, handwriting, typography, and it just so happened that around the time the printing press was brought to England, the letter thorn was written in a way that made it look pretty close to the letter Y. And so in some cases, the printers were like, okay, so we're trying to print this English text, but we don't have anything to use for this thorn character. But, I mean, it kind of looks like a Y, so I guess close enough, let's just use a Y. And so if you've ever seen, like, an old-timey sign for, you know, like, ye old shop or whatever, that Y in there in ye wasn't actually meant to be pronounced like a Y. It was just, like, the closest they could get to the character for the th sound. Which means it was actually supposed to be read the old shop. But, you know, it's been like hundreds of years since people last saw the letter thorn in English, so it's not really surprising we all forgot the origins of the spelling, and, you know, since we know why makes the ye sound, it's just ye old shop. Alright, so we've talked about this example where we have two letters representing one sound, but now what about those letters that can represent two different sounds, like C or G? Well, we talked a little bit last time about their history, where the Romans had inherited gamma, but because of its path through the Etruscans, it had turned into a C-shape and was pronounced k. And then because they needed a new letter for the g sound, they added a little line to C to make the new letter G. And so at the point where we left off last time, the k sound was almost always represented by the letter C in Latin. And then when Old English adopted the Latin alphabet, they did the same thing and just use C for all the words that had a k sound. So, for example, the word for king, kuning, 
was spelled C-Y-N-I-N-G. The word broken was spelled B-R-O-C-E-N. And the word thick was spelled with that letter thorn and then I-C-C. Yep, that's right. We've come full circle on the two C's ending, y'all. So, yeah, at that point, the letter C to the sound K was a totally one-to-one correspondence. So, what changed? Well, in this case, it was actually a pronunciation change in the language that led to the spelling change. Because, as I keep saying, language is always changing, and this change is actually a pretty common mechanism of pronunciation change. It's called palatalization, and, like, tons of languages have gone through it at various points in history. And it has to do with, like, where you pronounce things in your mouth. So, like, if you think of the vowels A, E, I, O, U, and think of how you pronounce them, like, where your tongue is when you say them, notice that E or I, or, like, the sounds E and E, these are pronounced towards the front of your mouth, so we call those front vowels. But the others, like A, O, U, or, like, A, 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 are pronounced in the back of the mouth, so we call those back vowels. And so then, notice where your tongue hits the roof of your mouth when you say K, K. It's in the back, right? And so going from one back sound to another back sound, like from K to one of those back vowels, like, that's fine, that's no problem. But going from K to a front vowel, well, it's a little farther for your tongue to travel, a little bit more effort, and so maybe if you're just being kind of lazy or just talking quickly, it might be a bit easier to move that K sound forward in the mouth just so your tongue doesn't have as far to go. It's a little smoother transition. And that's exactly what happened. In words where the K sound was before a back vowel, A, O, or U, the sounds stay the same. Think like cat, caught, or cut. No change. But before front vowels, E or I, it shifted forward. But the way it shifted was slightly different in different places. So in Italian, for example, it changed to a ch sound. For example, the word for hundred in Latin was centum, spelled C-E-N-T-U-M, but in Italian it became cento, C-E-N-T-O. So that k in centum changed to a ch in cento. But in Spanish, on the other hand, it changed to a s, so the word for hundred became ciento. Except in Castilian Spanish, where it became a th sound, so in Spain you'll still hear ciento. But, of course, we're mainly focused on the languages that had the biggest impact on modern English, which would be Old French and Old English. So, in French, the k sound before e and i became, well, first a t sound, like t-s, and then eventually shifted to an s sound. So, for example, the word for hundred in French is cent, which incidentally is where we get words like cent and century from. But more on that in a minute. And then in Old English, on the other hand, that k sound shifted to a ch before front vowels. So we had words like c-i-l-d, which was pronounced child, and r-i-c-e, which was pronounced riche, 
which, through that good old great vowel shift again, became the words child and rich. Okay, so at this point, everything is still fairly logical and straightforward in Old English. If a C is before a back vowel, it's pronounced K, and if it's before a front vowel, it's pronounced CH. And there's no letter K or anything else to confuse matters. Until, of course, the Norman Conquest, when the French system got all up in the mix, and so now we had both the French and the English systems of C and their various sounds all mixed up together, which got pretty confusing, and so the scribes of the time tried to have things be at least somewhat systematic. And since the scribes were French-trained, since French was the language of the government, the aristocracy, and all that, they pretty much just extended the French system. So here's where we ended up in Middle English. So both French and English hadn't changed the K sound before back vowels and consonants, so those words kept that original C spelling. Again, words like cut, cat, caught, crop, that all stayed the same. It was before those front vowels that things got a little more complicated. So for words that came from French, remember in French the sound had shifted to s, and since we were basically just keeping the French system, if a C came before an E or an I, it was pronounced like an S. And so we got words like city and civil, or that cent and century from before. And then the Old English words, where the sound before E and I was ch, well, they needed something new for that. But there was one other precedent that in some parts of central France, that sound was represented by the letters ch. And so they just went ahead and used that for English, too. And as far as the letter name goes, we used the French system for that, too. So remember, in Latin, the letter C would have been called K. But because the K is before a front vowel in the letter name, it would have also changed to C. And just like the other letters, the great vowel shift would have changed that vowel to make it C. And then there was one other complication, which was that not every single word that had k before a front vowel had become palatalized. There were still a handful of words, both in French and in English, that had a k sound before one of those e or i front vowels. Often, though not always, because it had come into the language from somewhere else. And so that also had to be accounted for, because it didn't fit into the rest of the system. So in Old English, for the most part, they just hadn't really worried about it and had just kept the C regardless. So like C-E-N-T for Kent or C-Y-N-G for King. Just like, yeah, the C is before a front vowel, but you know the word, you know what we mean, just memorize the irregular ones. But French, on the other hand, decided to pull out and dust off that old, rarely used letter K to distinguish those few words that still had a K sound before front vowels, instead of shifting to a S sound like the rest of the Cs. And again, because of the power of French at the time, the scribes changed the English words to match that system too, and so we got Kent and King spelled with a K. We also have more K words nowadays, because more recently, as we've adopted words into English, especially words that come from a different writing system, if a word has a K sound in it, well, now we tend to just use a K for that, because we just associate the letter K with that sound now, because K's only got one sound, whereas C has two, so it just seems to make more sense. 
where in the past they'd have brought foreign words in with a C because that was the letter that was associated with the K sound. And of course, just to make things more confusing, when we bring in words from other languages that do use the Latin alphabet, we tend to keep their spelling, which means however they pronounce the letter C goes, like in cappuccino. Fun times. Alright, so moving on to G, it's a pretty similar story to C. Basically, we had that palatalization thing happening again. So, just like C, G initially only had the one pronunciation of G. But then, in the Romance languages, before those front vowels, E and I, the sound of G moved forward from G to J. And then when French was introduced in Middle English, that J sound got introduced along with it. Now, if you're familiar with modern French, you might be thinking like, but wait, the French sound is je, not je. But that's actually a sound change that French went through later on that English didn't, which is why, for example, in English we have the word intelligence, while in French it's intelligence. Or like English joy versus French joie. Je versus je. Of course, that last one's spelled with a J, not G, which we'll get to in a bit. And, of course, to make things more confusing, well, we got a bunch of French words introduced in Middle English when the French still used the J sound, like intelligence, general, giant, danger. It's not like contact with France just, like, stopped after that. So there were also French words we borrowed later on, after French had made that sound change, which is why there are some words spelled with G that have a J sound, like beige, or genre. And, as you might expect, the letter name was also like C in that G, since G always used to be a G sound, it was originally called G, but then between the palatalization to J before front vowels and then the great vowel shift changing A to E, we got G. Which seems to wrap up the letter G. But... So, we've looked at G as it traveled from Latin through French and into English, but, well, we know English is just a mutt of a language, and G is honestly a pretty good example of that. So, let's go back in time again, back to Old English, and follow a different path it took. So, if you remember back from the beginning of this episode, the Germanic languages were originally written in the runic alphabet, But then around the 700s, when Christianity came to Britain, the Latin alphabet came with it. So the Latin alphabet was used to write Old English as well as Old French. But like I mentioned before, just like how spoken language evolves over time and evolves in different ways in different places, so like they eventually diverge enough for you to get different dialects or even different languages, the same thing happened with the written forms of the letters. So I haven't really gotten into all the details of the various different scripts or typography or whatever, like all the ways the letters have been written and how that changed over time and in different places. And I'm not actually really going to get into it now either. Like, I don't even know how I'd really do that in, you know, an audio medium. But I just want you to keep in mind for now that they did change. And even though Old French and Old English both used the Latin alphabet, By the time the Normans invaded England, they didn't write it in exactly the same way. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. So, 
The letter G in Old English actually represented a few different sounds, kind of like it did in Old French where it was both G and J. And just like with that distinction, the different sounds it made depended on the sounds before or after it. Now, there's not really, like, one set way to describe the different sounds it made, because, like, it did kind of change over time, and different groups of people had different dialects, and honestly, it's just hard to be, like, 100% certain about how people spoke over a thousand years ago. But in general, by the end of the Old English period, we're pretty sure it was something like this. So the letter G would sound like G if it was before another consonant or a back vowel. So, for example, there was, like, got modern-day goat, or gos, modern-day goose, or gloan, glow. But if it was at the end of a word, it became a h sound. Same as in, like, the Scottish loch, or the German composer bach. Or an example of an Old English word was, like, burg, which was, like, city. Like, we get borough from it, like the five boroughs of New York City, or also burg, like Pittsburgh. And then if the G was between two vowels, where the second was a back vowel, the sound became a G sound, which is just the same as the other H sound, is just voiced instead of unvoiced. So there were words like boha, bow, or dagas, which was the plural of day, or day in modern English. And those three ways of pronouncing the letter, g versus g versus h, they're actually all pronounced in the same place in the mouth. Like, the back of the tongue goes up to the back of the roof of the mouth for all of them. It's just that g is a stop or plosive, and g and h are fricatives. And so they didn't actually think of these as separate sounds. They were all just a g sound. It's kind of like I was talking about before, how we have that aspirated versus unaspirated T in top versus stop. Some languages recognize those as two separate sounds, which can actually change the meaning of words depending which one you use, but for us it's all just a T sound. And so for the Old English speakers, that was all just a G sound. The technical term for that, by the way, is allophones. So, Old English speakers had those three different ways they pronounced G, or three allophones of G, depending where it was in the word, but there was actually one other way that developed too. And just like in French, what happened again was that palatalization before or also after front vowels, E and I. But where in Old French the sound moved all the way up to J, in Old English it just shifted to Y. So, for example, there was the word yard, spelled G-E-A-R-D, which became our word yard, or the word day, which was the singular of day and used to end with a G instead of a Y. So, just to summarize, in Old English, they tended to use the G sound before consonants or back vowels at the beginning of the word, G between back vowels, H at the end of a word, and y before or after front vowels. Sort of complicated, but at least it's pretty regular. But remember how English is a mutt? Yeah, it's not going to stay even that simple. And the first issue actually came with the Viking invasions of Britain, which started around 800 and continued for the next few hundred years. I got into a bit more detail about that in episode 2 if you're curious, 
but basically it brought in a bunch of influence and mingling of Scandinavian or Old Norse language, and from them we got words like get or give or gear, which you'll notice have a G before front vowels, but unlike Old English, Old Norse had kept the G sound there. So yeah, we've already lost some of the consistency at this point. But where it really starts to get complicated is when the two paths of G we've been talking about collide, when Old French meets Old English. Which, again, was very similar to what happened with C. So again, the scribes, being French-trained, kept the French conventions, so the letter G was J before front vowels and G everywhere else. But then they had to figure out something to do with all the different G sounds that Old English had. The G sound was fine, that was just the same as French, but for the rest, well, this is actually where all that stuff I talked about with the different ways of writing the letters finally comes into play. Because by this point, the written G used in French looked like a completely different letter from the written G used in Old English. And so they were just like, okay, cool, we'll just use the French written G for the French G and J sounds, and the English written G for those English sounds, G, H, and Y. And so Middle English had this other extra letter in the alphabet, which they called Yog, or Yoch. We don't actually know where the name comes from, but it could just be from the sounds the letter represents, Y and H, Yoch. Okay, but you might have noticed, like, that's not a letter we have now. Yeah, yog was pretty short-lived. There were a few different reasons for that. So, for one thing, not everyone always used yog. Since there was also, in Middle English, the letter y that could be used for the y sound, a lot of the time they just use y instead of yog. Like the examples before, yard, or yard, and day, or day, which used to be spelled with g, but now are spelled with y. And then that other sound of yog, that h, also had an alternate spelling, which was gh. Which is just one more example of using an h after a letter to show that it's sort of a modified form of the letter, just like ch, sh, and th. And I mean, it kind of makes sense, because like in Romance languages, the h had become silent by this point, so here's this silent letter that can now have a use. Namely, like, to indicate, like, hey, this letter just before it, it's not the normal pronunciation of the letter, it's like the alternate pronunciation. And yeah, so for a while, sometimes you'd see yog, sometimes you'd see y, sometimes you'd see gh, it really just depended. But there were two reasons why yog eventually disappeared. The first was because, so the way the written form of yog had evolved, it became pretty indistinguishable from, like, a cursive z. So that was kind of confusing. But the other, probably bigger reason, is the same as all the other letters we lost, the appearance of the printing press. Because, once again, the Latin alphabet didn't have that character, so the printers didn't have it in their letter sets and, you know, didn't really have any way to print it. And so that g or h sound was written gh in words like nicht, which became night, or throch, which became through or koch, which became cough. But, as I'm sure you know, that sound doesn't exist in English anymore, so now, for the most part, those GHs are silent, 
except in a handful of places where they turned into an F sound. Again, thanks to the printing press standardizing spelling to what it was at the time, so that now we spell based on those historical pronunciations. Oh well, what can you do? And so, now, for the most part, G by itself pretty much just represents the two sounds G and J. But, as many people have complained about, there's a whole other letter for that second one, J. So, what's the deal with that? Well, J is actually the most recent addition to the alphabet. And it's actually totally a coincidence that G and J ended up with the same sound. So, if you look at how the letter J is written, have you ever noticed that it's pretty similar to I? Like, it's basically just the letter I with a little tail. Which is actually how it got its start. It was really initially just a fancy way to write I. At first, just in Roman numerals, when there were multiple I's, like for the number three, they'd use a fancy little hook on the third I. And when it was used in words, it had the same sound as the letter I, either the vowel E or the consonant Y. Generally speaking, the I sound was pronounced like a vowel if it was in the middle of a word, but more like a consonant if it was at the beginning of a word. And at the same time, over time, it became like kind of a convention in some places to use the I form of the letter in the middle of a word, where it happens to generally be pronounced as a vowel, and the J form if it was the first letter of the word, which happened to generally be pronounced as a consonant. Which wasn't because of them recognizing the different sounds or anything, it was just like to give that I at the beginning a bit more like emphasis, make sure you could really read it better. And so, actually, if you think about it, most words that have a J in it now, at least ones that aren't more recent borrowings from other languages, have the J at the beginning. There's not many words that have a J in the middle, and the ones that do tend to be words where the root starts with J and it just has a prefix in front, like subject or conjure. And the only words that end with J are words that are brought in from other languages, like Hajj or the Taj Mahal. But for a long time, J was just seen as a variant of I, just like a different way to write it. I mean, like, up to and including Samuel Johnson in 1755, which was after the sound had changed, but yeah, some people, not everyone to be clear, but some people just wanted to stick with tradition, you know, the original way, the correct way. Hmm, where have I heard that before? And since it wasn't seen as a separate letter until recently, it didn't get its own name until recently either, and even then it was called Jai to rhyme with I, just using its now distinct sound at the beginning. This was after the great vowel shift, by the way, which is why it was I and Jai, not E and G. Might be another reason we didn't go with that one, too. But yeah, at some point it did evolve from Jai to J, and because it was after the great vowel shift, we're not totally sure why. Like, it might just be to rhyme with the next letter, K, but yeah, we don't really know for sure. Okay, great, but like, seriously, what's the deal with it changing from a Y sound to a J sound? Like, those sounds are pretty different, right? So how could anyone see them as, like, interchangeable or whatever? Well, as it happens, I've actually done that myself in my own dialect. Like, I might say something like, Hey, did you get around to finishing that show on Netflix? We have to talk about it. Did you catch that? J catch that? Did ya? Instead of did ya? 
or you. There's plenty of dialects that say stuff like did ya or would ya for did you or would you, where that y in you ends up coming out like j. Or there's some other dialects that might say like odious or hideous, like odious or hideous. So yeah, it's not actually that much of a stretch. And so that's kind of what happened in Old French, is that y consonant shifted to a j sound, which then came into Old English with all the other stuff. And just like with g, the sound in French shifted more to j, and so we get that joy, joie distinction I mentioned a bit ago. And so, yeah, g and j started out totally different and just happened to end up with the same sound. And that actually brings us to the end of the alphabet, chronologically at least. We've traced all the letters all the way from ancient Egypt to today. It's pretty cool how so many of the letters have like a clear direct route from the alphabet thousands of years ago, whereas others really can kind of help us see how different languages have spread and intermingled over the centuries. I mean, would I have maybe wished for a different outcome in some cases? Sure. But Hey, at this point, it's what we're used to, and I honestly doubt we're going to see much change in the near future, at least, with all of us using standardized keyboards nowadays. But who knows? I mean, the language is in all of our collective hands. Thanks for listening to Why is English? with me, Laura Brandt. I hope you enjoyed learning some of the explanations for some of the weirdnesses of our alphabet, and I hope you'll join me next time for more cool language facts and history.